This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. Item four is actions on special orders of the day that typically proceeds with your council member announcements. What you're hearing is an Oakland, California city council meeting that took place in July of 2014. Announcements or- There's a whole bunch of different issues on the agenda. Everything from allegations of funds being misused. We know that there was a lot of manipulation of funds. Okay? And there's been a big ripoff with those funds. To announcements of neighborhood parties. Basketball, pickup games, field games, face painting, uh, Zuma dancing. And producer Mickey Capra sat through the entire meeting like a good reporter does. To hear them say this. Move the item, Madam President. Moved by Vice Mayor Reed. Second. Uh, seconded by Ms. McElhaney, and by consensus, we'll adopt the items in the consent calendar. So they never actually say it directly, but by adopting the items in the consent calendar, what happened there is that the city of Oakland finally legalized for the first time since the 1930s pinball machines. I'm Michael Sheese. I'm the uh, founder and executive director of the Pacific Pinball Museum. The Pacific Pinball Museum, which is a collection of really cool, mostly older machines that you can still play, is in Oakland's neighboring city, Alameda. Until recently, coin-operated pinball machines were also illegal in Alameda. And it's the reason that we started out as an admission-based establishment and everything was on free play. Most of the museum's pinball machines look a lot like the ones you've seen before in your local bar. But there are a few really old ones that look completely different. And pinball's design history can help explain why it was illegal for so long and why after nearly 80 years of being a slightly sketchy leather jacket wearing nerdwell, pinball can now go legit and claim its place with Pac-Man as good clean family fun. Pinball evolved out of a game that was also played in a tilted cabinet, but was a bit more like billiards. You'd shoot the ball onto the field with a pool stick. In the 1860s, the pool cue turned into a spring-loaded plunger that you'd pull and release to launch the ball. They were simple wooden boards with glass tops. No electricity, no flashy art or colors. And the game was made small to fit on top of a counter at a bar or drugstore. The mechanics of the game were simpler too. You basically did one action, pull the plunger. The ball would shoot up the right side of the board and onto the play field where there were little pockets that would catch the ball and then they were usually stamped with, with a point value. And there were pins, which looked like tiny nails that obstructed your way into the pockets. That's where pinball came from, was the, uh, the nails or the pins that were driven into the board. And the first games weren't coin-operated. Bars would buy one. And they would rent it out to people that wanted to play it and gamble with it. It was kind of like renting out the card table. By the 1930s, pinball games were coin-operated. And you'd find these little countertop games all over the place, in bars and drugstores. You know, you'd buy an egg cream to drink and some horrible-tasting elixir at the local drugstore, and you'd use your change to play some pinball. And maybe you'd win a pack of gum or a cigar, and you'd have fun doing it. Then it moved to just straight-up gambling. Where, instead of being awarded a prize, you were given cash. And it's around this point that pinball became electric. Lights and buzzers started showing up, along with other stuff, like bumpers that you could bounce off of to get more points. Points that needed to be tallied up on a scoreboard, which led to what is now referred to as the back glass. That's the part of the pinball machine that faces you as you play. And the art on the back glass became one of the most iconic things about the pinball machine. On the newer games, a lot of the art is licensed from movies, like the 1991 hit blockbuster The Addams Family. But if you go into the Pinball Museum in Alameda, 
almost all the old games from the 30s and 40s were done by one of two artists. So George Melenton and Roy Parker. The art was meant to appeal to men and boys, so a lot of it features pictures of pretty ladies. The back glass of a game called Marble Queen depicts a group of women in swimsuits and high heels gathered around in a circle, playing marbles. They're surrounded by a big tall fence, almost like they're in a clubhouse. And you see the, the guys that are, you know, peeking through the fence and it's pretty funny. The ultimate fantasy of a boy from the 1930s was women in their bathing suits playing marbles. The lights and buzzers and women in bathing suits just made you want to put more and more money into the machines. Sometimes people were just playing to win a free game. Other times there was a bigger payout, but it all added up. These things made a ton of money. I can't emphasize enough of that because the mafia got involved. It was all cash. With so much money disappearing into pinball machines, the authorities started cracking down. It really got heated in the 40s. More and more laws were being enacted to make pinball gambling harder. Manufacturers would try to get around this by labeling the machines. It says right here, for amusement only, no prizes, no wagering. I mean, they put that right on the machine. And everybody knew that, well, that's exactly what it was for. By the end of the 1940s, pinball was banned in most major cities, including Chicago and Los Angeles. But perhaps nowhere was the pinball crackdown so extreme as in New York City, where in 1942, Mayor LaGuardia ordered the NYPD to round up all of the machines. Then, in a press event, the mayor personally shattered some of the machines with a sledgehammer and had them dumped into the Hudson River. LaGuardia later reported that 2,000 new police billy clubs would be made from the wooden legs of old pinball machines. Perfect for knocking the heads of pinball-playing hooligans. Mayor LaGuardia did not succeed in ridding the world of pinball entirely, though. It was still legal in some cities, and even in New York, it didn't totally disappear. It just moved into seedy, underground establishments. Meanwhile, the game designers were still developing new features, the most important of which were the flippers that first appeared in 1947 that allowed you to swap the ball around the playfield by pressing two buttons on either side of the machine. In other words, the flippers gave you some control over the outcome of the game. Remember, when pinball machines were first banned, the games were considered a game of chance. You'd basically put your quarter in, pull back the plunger, and hope for the best. When the flipper was added to the pinball machine, it should have changed the game's legal status. It wasn't a game of chance anymore. You could finally control the ball. If only they could find some way to prove it. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Roger Sharp. I guess at one point I was considered to be, if not the best player in the world, one of the best players in the world. Nearly 40 years after the introduction of the flipper, in April of 1976, Roger Sharp was called upon to prove that pinball was a game of skill before a meeting of the New York City Council. On the day of the hearing, tensions were high. It was packed. Uh, A lot of camera crews. The New York State Coin-Operated Amusement Game Association had arranged for the hearing, and they'd hauled two pinball machines into the meeting room. One that Sharp was to play, and another that would serve as a backup in case the first one suddenly died. And I uh, started going over to the game that had been designated. The council had been pretty antagonistic to Sharp. They thought he would cheat. And right before he was supposed to play, a council member stopped him. He said, no, not that game. That game over there. I think that the head of the city council thought that that game was somehow rigged. 
let's go with the game that's been turned off that nobody's paid any attention to that's over there in the corner. The council session took a 20-minute recess so that the camera crews could change the lighting from the original machine to the new machine. And then Roger Sharp steps up and starts playing. Back then, I was able to really show off. So it was very nice to be able to call my shots and just do whatever I wanted to do, making backhands and shots from right to left and left to right. And then, for the grand finale, Sharp wanted to prove that even the first shot, the one that involves just pulling back the plunger and letting go, that even that shot can be perfected with skill. So he turns to the council members and says, If I do this right, it's going to land right down the uh, center. Pull back the plunger. It went up. And the ball went straight down the center. And the guy who was at the council kind of threw up his head. That's enough. And I was, re- I was ready to keep on playing. I was having fun. City council voted 6-0 to zero to pass the legislation. Sharp has said in the past that he got lucky with this shot. But now he says that he was being modest. That his plunge was not luck. To do what I did, that was skill. To have done it the way that I did it was pure naivete. Within a year, pinball was legal again in most places across the country. But not in Oakland and Alameda, where, as we heard in the beginning of the show, pinball just became legal in 2014. Even with the rise of video games, the pinball industry continued to experience waves of success until the 1990s. But over time, people lost interest. The last big corporation to manufacture pinball machines lost millions of dollars on its pinball division and decided to shut down in favor of a more profitable operation, making slot machines for casinos. After decades of fighting to prove that pinball could be a game of skill, it turned out that the most lucrative bet for game makers was on games of chance, gambling machines. You know Bally's Casino? They used to be in the pinball business, and they took their name from their first hit pinball machine manufactured in 1932 called Ballyhoo. Welcome to the 21st century. In 1999, pinball tried to make a comeback with a game that integrated a video screen on the back glass with a mechanical playfield. Welcome to Pinball 2000. Welcome to the new image in pinball. Welcome to the 21st century. That was a promo video for Pinball 2000. Despite the reverb and the menacing ticking clock and the mountains of hyperbole heaped upon the promotion of the game, it never really caught on. Which is probably because if pinball still has any appeal, it's actually the vintage analog nostalgia feelings it brings up in people. We like it because it's not the future. It's the past. Back at the Pacific Pinball Museum, Mike Sheese thinks pinball is making a bit of a comeback, and it's because people are longing to get away from screens and from games that they play at home alone. So with pinball, you can kind of gather around and watch your friends suck. (laughs) And that's the other thing that's really cool, is that anybody can suck at pinball. I mean, it's a great equalizer. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be physically uh, an athlete. I think what he means is that anybody can suck and anybody can be great. It's a nerd's game, a rebel's game, an underdog's game. One of the best pinball players in the U.S. right now is a young guy with autism who can memorize the geometric patterns that the ball makes on the playfield. And then, of course, there's that deaf, dumb, and blind kid I heard about once. Never saw him play, but I heard he was really good. Ever since I was a young boy, I played the silver ball. From Soho down to Brighton, I must have played them all. Fly 
99% Invisible was produced this week by Mickey Capper and Katie Mingle with Sam Greenspan, Avery Truffleman, and me, Roman Mars. Mickey did another piece about pinball and its roots in Chicago for a program I love called Curious City. It's, it's not really like just a show. It's this news gathering experiment based at WBEZ where people submit questions about Chicago and Curious City investigates and reports. It's genius. We'll have a link on our website. We are a project of 91.7 Local Public Radio KALW in San Francisco and produced out of the offices of ArcSign, an architecture firm in beautiful downtown, always law-abiding Oakland, California. Support for 99% Invisible comes from our flipping and tilting listeners and from Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, blog, or portfolio. is a big day in Squarespace land. Today, October 7th, they are releasing Squarespace 7. They have magically simplified the whole website making process so that you can add content and customize all in one window. You may not fully realize how amazing that is if you've never tried to use one of the old website builders from the aughts. It was grim. It was a, it was a bad time to be alive. Nothing ever looked the way you intended. Squarespace is here to save you from that nightmare. Sign up for a free trial now at squarespace.com and use the offer code INVISIBLE and I'll save you 10%. Support is also provided by the Facebook design team who believes that design can bring positive change to the world. Visit them at facebook.com slash design. And the triple score multi-ball of partners is Tiny Letter. Email for people with something to say. My boy Maslow always has something to say. What do you have to say, Maslow? I don't really know much about pinball, but I am really good at air hockey. He is pretty fierce at air hockey. Tinyletter.com. It's free, easy, minimal, and powerful. The simplest way to send an email newsletter from the great people behind MailChimp. Speaking of MailChimp, thanks to them and the Knight Foundation, I and a bunch of the most amazing radio makers in the world got together with PRX to form a collective called Radiotopia. Welcome to Strangers. The truth. Theory of everything. Radio Diaries. Love and Radio. Fugitive Waves. From the Kitchen Sisters. On October 14th, one week from when I'm recording this, Radiotopia is going to have the biggest day in its existence. You will determine our future. As a collective, we're going to launch a massive Kickstarter that supports 99% Invisible and all the shows in Radiotopia. We're going to offer amazing prizes. I was looking at the t-shirts today. They're so cool. And we're going to change the future of radio storytelling at the same time. Mark your calendars. You don't want to miss it. It's coming up on October 14th. It's two days before I turn 40. So let's make it a good birthday, shall we? We'll give you full details on next week's show on launch day, and you can always keep up with the latest news at 99pi.org. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.